All right, good morning, Calvary Chapel. Welcome if you're uh, visiting today for the first time. <clears throat> Hope you were warmly greeted in the name of the Lord this morning and that uh, you will truly sense the love and the Spirit of Christ in this place today, as, as I do every Sunday when I come. So uh, we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. We were prepared for that. Uh, so we have Bibles in the back. If you uh, need one, just raise your hand nice and high, and the guys in the back will bring a Bible to you. Only one place to mark today, that's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, if you don't know where that is, uh, you can look in the table of contents in your Bible and that'll get you directed in the right place. Let's pray especially hard today, and I'll explain why in just a few minutes. Let's, let's pray, and we'll get into our Bible study together. Heavenly Father, uh, boy, there is uh, such a blessing in studying your word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept upon precept, Lord, as today we open up once again and see what you have for us. Lord, uh, we know that sometimes uh, that, that your word is like a two-edged sword. Sometimes um, it, it cuts in a way that hurts, and sometimes it cuts in a way that heals, Lord. And I pray that we would be receptive and accepting of both of those things, both of them being important, Lord. Sometimes you need to point out to us things that just need to change. Sometimes you need to point out to us thought patterns and habits and uh, mindsets and just all kinds of ways of thinking, strongholds that just need to be undone, taken down and destroyed and replaced with truth. And Lord, other times your word is just such a comfort, such a, a, a salve like on a wound, Lord, and you, you just bring that healing to us through your word. And, and this morning, Lord, again, we just submit ourselves to you fresh, um, acknowledging that you are God and we are not that you are truth that we need to know. And you are our hope. Speak to us this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, some of you know that it's been, for me, uh, I've not been preaching with notes for a long time. Well, this morning, I have notes. Uh, how many of you have read ahead First Timothy chapter 2, or have ever read that before. So if you're, if you're visiting today, if this is your first time here, this might be an interesting sermon for you to hear. Uh, it's good, and no, no, I don't want to get to the point where I feel like I have to explain for God. You know, I have to explain, these are some tough things. Not tough from God's standpoint, tough from our standpoint, because they may be uh, different than what we perceive is right. They may be different than what we're used to culturally. And so some of these things, we might say, well, these are hard things. Well, to God, they're not hard. They're very basic. But to us, they may be difficult or challenging. And I think to this group, I don't think so much. I think this group is very receptive to whatever the Lord uh, says and has for us. But I will ask this, um, specifically of the women, ladies in here. Um, if you hear me say, we're going to be talking about women today for part of the sermon. And uh, if you hear me say something and it, it, it's offensive, and you're wondering if maybe you misunderstood and maybe I meant something else, then I meant something else. Just let's get that straight, right? 
<laughs> Whatever it was you think I meant, uh, that's not offensive, that's what I meant. But, but I do want to say as we, as we get into this also that, uh, you know, Paul has sent Timothy and we've been talking about fixing, how to fix a broken church. And, and we've all been to broken churches. We've all been in places where you go, you know, I don't know if I'd invite someone to this church. There's a lot of attention. There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of fighting for power. And have you been in a church like that? I, and there's this like, I don't know if I want to invite someone here. I mean, I'm not sure that this is really, for a new believer, I'm not sure you'd get the right impression of God coming here because people can't stand each other here. They're always fighting or there's, there's just tension. And, and that doesn't glorify God. And so because, again, we, are, uh, we, we, don't, we know we're not under the law, that doesn't mean there aren't any sort of uh, rules of order and ways to be ordered. Order glorifies God. He's a God of order. Look at the world we live in. Look at the way the universe is ordered. Look at the way the, the earth is ordered. And so we know we serve a God of order. And so order is not unspiritual. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. Order is what gives the opportunity for the, truly the spirit of God to be realized and recognized in our midst. So we're going to talk some about order. Um, we were in... 1 Timothy chapter 1, we finished that up last week. Uh, the first thing that, um, as, bless you, as Timothy cleans house, wow. Spirit is moving. <laughs> the first thing that Timothy is called to address as he cleans house in Ephesus or at this Ephesian church is the pulpit. The pulpit. The first place he's got to clean up and get straight and get in order is the pulpit, the teaching. And I still think that's the first place that has to start. Everything is generated from the pulpit, what is being taught. And and for Timothy, there were some things that were being taught in the church where he was called to step in to some leadership. Uh, There were some things that were being taught that weren't healthy, that didn't produce love and faith. They produced arguments and wranglings and and deep discussions about useless things and they spent a lot of time talking about those things and in some ways they were bringing the you know reintroducing the law that you know christ is great but then you need the law and the law was meant to be like a leash for a dog the law is like a leash if you have a disobedient unruly dog he needs to be on a leash because he's going to go places he shouldn't and the leash can restrain him and then you want to take him where you want him to go so you got to Drag him along with the leash. But if you have an obedient dog, the leash is sort of obsolete. If, he, if the dog is locked onto his master and follows him and, and is focused on him, then you don't need the leash. So the law isn't meant for the person who's following the Lord closely. The law is meant for the people that are not following the Lord, that are doing things that are unloving and, and incorrect. So... The law is not to, meant to make us more spiritual. It's meant to lead us. See, with the law, it restrains, but it also leads people where? Leads people to Christ. That's the way the law works as a leash. So having dealt with that, uh, having commissioned Timothy uh, for the job he's supposed to do in the church there at Ephesus, now we begin chapter 2. We begin cutting to the chase. Now we have to fix the prayer life of the church. We fix the pulpit. Timothy charging that they teach no other doctrine, but now we've got to fix the prayer life 
the prayer. Well, how's the prayer life of our church? I began asking myself that. Let's let's see what uh, how we compare as we get into chapter two and verse one. Paul begins, therefore, having said all that he has already said, he says, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So he says, interestingly, first of all. So having dealt again with the pulpit sort of first, but not in a direct way, he says, Timothy, before anything else gets addressed in the church, the first thing you have to deal with is prayer. And oftentimes prayer is sort of the last thing you think of, the last thing I think of. I'm much more likely to complain than to pray. Is that you too? Are you like that? You find yourself, you, something happens, something goes wrong, you're upset about something, and you come in, and the first thing you do is complain. And sometimes Helga and I will catch ourselves. You know, we're complaining. Like, oh, you know what? We're accomplishing zilch by complaining. Nothing. Wouldn't our time be better used if we prayed? And I think that's true. But why is it there's some needy, wicked, little inside part of us that loves to complain and And so Paul says, I exhort, first of all, the first thing, before anything else, uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. There's some slight differences in these words. I don't think we need to to get into what the differences are. Um, The neat one in the the whole thing is the intercessions as well. That's sort of uh, approaching for a conversation. And I like to think about prayer as this you're approaching God for, with a conversation, approach in a friendly manner to converse. And oftentimes intercession is to converse uh, on behalf of somebody else, to, to go to, uh, to present yourself before the king to request something. Uh, supplications also is needs. Prayers is just that word that means our, um, our directed conversation to God. So, hey, look, bring your need to God, he says. The first thing you do is you bring... Whatever it is on your mind. And, and it includes giving of thanks. Don't, don't overlook that. Just giving of thanks. For how many men? When's the last time you gave thanks for that guy you work with? Or, or that, that woman that's at the gym? Or that soccer family? Or whatever it is. that Where is that person? You give thanks for them. God has them in your life for a reason. He's using them in your life. To show you your sin. That's what he's doing. He's, he's pointing out some issues that you have by the way that they rub you the wrong way or whatever it is. They're in your life. For, he says we should give thanks for all men. Now, the Democrats say that can't include the Republicans. And the Republicans say that can't include the Democrats. But look what he says next. He says for all men, for kings and all. How many is all? All is all who are in authority. Now, it's interesting to read this, and I think very timely in an election year, don't you? To give thanks for all who are in authority. Now, we spend a lot of time, where where do you see where this is going? This is going towards salvation for all men. See, this is God's heart. God loves the whole world. He loves the leader of Israel, and he loves the leader of Iran. He loves the Democratic candidate, and the Republican candidate. And see, we spend a lot of time praying for the outcome we want in the election. 
But do we care about the souls of the men running? And that's the challenge I want to level before this church today. If you could compare minute for minute your time complaining about the government status in our country versus praying for it, how would that weigh out? I mean, just minute for minute. Okay, I spend an hour a day complaining about the president or complaining about the election or complaining about the candidates. Do you spend an hour a day praying for the candidates, praying for the election, praying for the souls, the the wives, the children, the families, that they would, well, let's read on, for for all. And and to them, it would have been the Caesars. There's... Behind this, it's serious to Paul as he writes this. Look, it was tough in their day too. You you think we got it any different than they had it? Do you think things are all all that much better now? Or all that much worse? They had it tough too under the, the leadership that they were under. For kings and all who are in authority. Why do we pray, folks? Why do we do this? Look what he says next. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable or literally tranquil life in all godliness or reverence. And also, and the last word translated reverence is actually dignity. Um, people can become really undignified when they get into political discussions, can't they? People, you know, it's like all of a sudden you just hit this nerve, you know, and you just, wow, we get so heated and so excited and we sort of lose our cool sometimes. That's undignified and that doesn't represent Christ well. So what he says, if you pray, there are two things that can be accomplished. Number one, prayer changes our country. Prayer changes our world. And so we pray, and that can affect decisions that are made from the White House to the Kremlin and everywhere in between. So, guys, listen, are we a praying church? And and I hope, if I can remember, and if we don't spend too long on this, I'm going to move through the second half of this chapter really fast, so hopefully we can have time uh, at the end, maybe to spend some time praying together for our country. Maybe to spend some time praying uh, for the the presidential candidates and and all those in government authority. Maybe we can do that together. We'll see. We'll see if we get some time. Because this is meant for the public gathering. We're meant to pray, church. And I'm sort of embarrassed. It's this tough place as a pastor because, you know, we this church evangelizes. We we invite people in. And but but sometimes prayer is a little uncomfortable. Prayer is a little bit like Ooh, that's like close, you know? It's like, I want to, I want to come to church. I want to sit. I'll listen. Um, I'll sit in the back, but I don't want to talk to anybody. And so what happens is we tend, we tend to lower the bar then and say, well, because we don't want to offend anybody or make anybody feel uncomfortable, we can't pray. And the Lord's been really convicting me about that. You know, if you're here visiting today and we pray at the end, it's not to make you uncomfortable or embarrassed. It's because that's who we are. This is what we do is you're, you're in church and we pray and we should. And so I'm just, you know, the Lord's been convicting me about that. So it doesn't mean you have to, you know, you don't have to enter in. You can sit quietly and think or pray or whatever you want to do while we pray. And we're not going to do that like all afternoon, so don't worry. Um, But we need to pray, church. This is what Paul is saying. We need to pray so that we can live tranquil or, or quiet and tranquil lives. That's quiet meaning the external circumstances, but tranquil is an inner peace. So it's prayer takes care of the outward circumstances as well as the inward. That maybe if things aren't going the way that I thought they should, I'm still okay with that. That I'm at peace. Does that make sense? Are we together on that? That's the kind of life I want to lead. And, and if we pray for then then that can promote our ability to continue to worship together the Lord freely in our country. 
So we ought to be in prayer about these things. Verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So this, this is pleasing to God when we do that. When we pray for how many men? All men. When we give thanks for how many men? All men. Give thanks. This is good. Why is it good? Verse 4 tells us because uh, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What better prayer could you pray for our nation's president right now than that he would be saved and come to a, not, not just a, a loose knowledge, not just I know about the truth, but come to a full knowledge of the truth for himself and his family and for, you know, for, for the, the cabinet and for the Senate and for the Congress. And there, I thank God for the godly people that are in those places that have come to the full knowledge of the truth. And this is why God's desire is that all men would be saved, not just the ones we like, not just the ones that are in our party. You see, because there's more going on. There's more at stake. You know, the president of our country will lead for a time, and then someone else will lead, and then someone else, but no earthly kingdom will last. The kingdom that lasts, the kingdom we're focused on to, to a greater degree is the eternal one. And God's heart is that all men, now all men won't be saved, we know that, because some will reject. But what is God's heart in the matter? He wants all men to be saved. He, do, you? do you? Are there people you struggle with? You know, I'm not sure I want them to be saved. I'd rather, you know, see them go to a really hot place, you know, and I'm not talking about Florida. <clears throat> and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, verse 5 says, for there is one God. And the emperor is not that God, and the president is not that God. They don't look to the president or to the, the authorities to, for salvation. They're not going to save you eternally. There's one God, and how many mediators? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And I, I wonder if Paul has, has uh, Ezekiel in mind. You know, I looked for a man that would stand in the gap. That be a go-between. That's what mediator is. A mediator is a go-between. The one that has one hand in this camp and the other in that. A peacemaker that brings two people that are at odds with one another together into peace. Now the president can't do that with you and God. And nor can, could the emperor in Paul's day. Although the emperors were seen sometimes as mediators. Although the emperors were sometimes seen as, and worshipped as gods. Paul says, let's get this straight. If we want to see people saved, there's one place to go. And look, remember, you're not going to reason people into the kingdom. You're not going to argue them into heaven. But you can pray them in. And that's why Paul says, this is the first thing. Go to seminary. He doesn't say, this is the first thing. Get your arguments all straight. You know, know your doctrine, and that's all important, and, and get your apologetic stuff. No, the first thing, first thing, all that stuff is good. He says the first thing is that you pray for people's souls. And if you want to see a church that's healthy, and you want to be a church that's healthy, it's a church that is concerned for the souls of people eternally. Getting outside of, of our own little stuff here, our own little world, and thinking about other people and their eternal salvation, and introducing them to the one God and that one mediator, the one that, that, that stood in the gap between God and mankind. And, and look how he did it. He gave himself a ransom for all. 
ransom. How many guys like uh, uh, action-adventure movies? You, know, you see those movies where someone gets kidnapped and they get held for ransom and they're, they're hostages and you know, it's going to be you know, $5 million is the price. And so a mediator or a go-between has to take the ransom money to meet in the phone booth on the corner sometime and, you know, and the exchange is made, the money for the hostage. That's a really good biblical picture of ransom. A ransom is the money that's paid to buy a slave's freedom. And so you and I, the Bible clearly teaches, have been taken, taken captive, had been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And along came our mediator, our go-between, Jesus, not with, the, not with gold or silver or money, not to buy our freedom with that, but to buy it with what, folks? His blood. He gave his life. He, he not only was the mediator, but he was the ransom. His life was the ransom, was what it cost to buy my freedom. Otherwise, I'd still be a slave to all the nonsense and all the junk and all the lies and all the, the confusion that were part of um, my seemingly good life. But Jesus, there, look, there's one. Who, who else? Can Buddha say that? That he was a mediator between God and man and he gave his life? Who else can say that they gave their life a ransom for you and for me and for all men? No one else can say that because he desires that all men would be saved. And of course, Paul goes on to say, uh, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself, verse 6, a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so just reaffirming, uh, Timothy, this is what we're about. This is what we're supposed to be uh, talking about. This is what we're supposed to be into, people's souls, people's lives. Because you, you change a soul today and it changed generations to come. You know that? You see someone get saved, it changed their family, it changes their kids. It cha- you know, who, it's, it's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Now, so ha- having set that, look, folks, are we going to be a praying church or are we just going to talk about prayer? Are we just going to say our prayers or are we going to get down and get, and, and get into this prayer thing? Because it's the one place where everybody says, ah, my prayer life stinks. You know, my prayer ah, could be better. And I say the same thing. But I read this and it, and it just it grabs my heart and it says, you know, Steve, this is really, really important. This is really important for us as a church. And so I want to encourage you, you know, potlucks draw a big crowd, but prayer meetings not so much. So now verse 8. Paul says, I desire therefore, because prayer is so important, because men's souls are so important, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere. I like that. that men, in every place, literally, in every place, in every church, in, in, in every uh, meeting, that men pray. Now, again, he, he addresses the, the men first, and this is... Um, He's going to address the men first and some of the issues that they're having and then, and then the women as we get move from uh, fixing prayer to fixing power struggles. We'll see that the power struggles are often played out when we get together and when we pray. It's hard to pray when, you know, you're mad at that guy or you're, in a, in, you're outs, on the outs with that lady and, man, that's difficult. It, it, just, it interrupts things. It messes, messes up our ability to really focus on the Lord. So he says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere in every place. Lifting up holy hands. This is interesting for us guys. You know, I know my parents, uh, 
Uh, they went, like, we live in Philly. That's where I grew up in Philadelphia. And there's a Calvary Chapel right there in Philadelphia. It's a huge 10,000 strong church, a fantastic pastor. And, you know, here at Calvary Chapel, a lot of folks have the freedom during worship to, to raise their hands. And, and we're kind of used to that. But, but in some places, that's like, you don't do that. You know, you don't sneeze, you don't laugh, you don't cough. Nothing is just quiet during worship. And so raising hands, my parents go into Calvary Chapel and they see people raising their hands. They go, oh, this place is weird. We're out of here. This is charismatic. You know, people have their hands up. They don't understand. And us guys, we're kind of like that. We're afraid to like show any kind of emotion at all, you know, because emotion is weakness and, and I'm not, you know, so we, we come to worship and, and we'll stand because everybody's standing, but we, you know, we're, we're not lifting. I'm not, I don't lift, I'm not a hand lifter, okay, Steve? I'm, I'm just not a hand lifter, you know, I'm not lifting my hands at all. And it's not just about lifting up hands, it's about lifting up holy hands. So don't just lift up your hands because it's what everybody is doing or because, you know, it's cool to do or, or makes you feel good. You know, the hands that you lift up are hands that should be given to the Lord's work. Right? So, so don't, you know, don't, sometimes you can go out there kind of into the world and, and live like a jerk or, you know, whatever, treating people poorly. And you can be, oh, Lord, praise you. Oh, and everybody else in here sees you. You know, oh, look at him. He just loves the Lord. He's got his hands lifted up. You know, but oh, they're dirty hands. You know, they've been they've been cheating people on the outside. They've been dealing badly with people. They've they, you know they've been corrupted or whatever. So he says, look, it's okay. So I want to tell you, Calvary Chapel, when you pray, you know, I remember when our kids were little, and, and if they skinned their knee, they'd come running over to you know Jacob or Matt, Daddy. You know, the hands are going up. You know, to reach up, help. I need you. And so it's okay when you come to worship, when you come to pray, to say. God, you know, oh, Lord, our nation needs you, Father. Oh, Lord, if, if ever there's a time, Lord, we're dependent on you. And it's okay to, to you know, to, to be, a, a, you know, we're just so stiff. You know, let's be unstiff a little bit, right? It's okay if, if you know, because then the game is on. Touchdown! Yeah! You know, and the hands are flying. And, but at church, I'm not a hand lifter. Yes, you are. And this is his desire for us guys. Guys, listen, guys, men in here, men, men, men. Pray. Men, don't be afraid to lift up your hands to the Lord. It's not weakness, it's strength. When a man can lift his hands to the Lord, he is a strong man. Because evidently hands are pretty heavy, because most of us have trouble lifting them. So, But with, without wrath, without anger, without doubting... Um, Literally, without uh, disputing about stuff. You know, we may disagree on this doctrine, and we may disagree about that thing, but when we come to pray, we can agree that we need the Lord. So put those things aside, and guys, let's pray. Let's pray. Now, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, begins... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, I always get a little hesitant when I have to speak to uh, the women because I'm not one. Um, and so, and I'm fairly insensitive a lot of times. And so I recognize that if ever there was a time where I could potentially put my foot in my mouth, today could be the day. So I'm asking and praying with my hands up, Lord, please make these women gracious today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, uh, but this is good, this is good. I have a daughter, so these things are important to me, and, and we've had the conversations about clothing in our household um, 
and, and, and I wrestle with these things. We've had these conversations in our church. And he says, verse 9, in like manner, so as, as, the, as the church gathers together, in like manner, just like there's, there's uh, things for the men to think about uh, when they pray, that for the women, that they would adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So a note to the women. Evidently, remember, the, the reason Paul is, is talking about these things is because they are issues. The men were arguing and disputing when they should have been praying. Now the women, the prayer meeting and the church gathering is like a fashion show. And it's not right. Now, modesty, he says, I want them to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Um, modest literally means proper, appropriate. For what, you know, because we want there to be rules. You know, how short is too short? How tight is too tight? How low is too low? You're not going to get rules. God's not into giving us, you know, these, because it would be different all over the country. You know, you go some places in Africa, your knees are offensive. You can't wear shorts there because your knees are off limits. That's offensive. So it's different everywhere. And so you have to be sensitive to the culture you're in and to the, to, to the church gathering that you're in and dress appropriately. What's appropriate, pastor? Tell me so I know. You've got to work that out with the Lord and your own conscience. Because, well, who decides, you know, what the short length, you know, they go to school and it's like, okay, here's the short length. You know, you've got to be this length. But, you know, this is church and we expect that the Spirit of God is working in your life and in your conscience. So, you know, how do you know? Is it one inch more, one inch less? You know, what's... It's an attitude. It's an attitude of modesty, an attitude of appropriateness. Now, this doesn't mean that a woman can't dress nicely. You can dress very nicely and and modestly. And everybody laughs, you know, because sometimes people use this this set of verses here uh, to prohibit women from wearing, wearing makeup. And we all get a kick out of J. Vernon McGee. How many of you know J. Vernon McGee? You know, he, he was answering the question about should, woman, uh, should a woman wear makeup, and he said, you know, look, if the barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> That's J. Vernon McGee. I don't know. I'm not saying that, ladies. Trust me. I, but it's not a prohibition against those things because there's, there's two ways to be immodest. One, and the issue they were having, look, braided hair, which again, not in and of itself, they would braid, and and it's just fancy, very fancy uh, to draw attention to themselves. Gold, pearls, costly clothing. There's one way to dress inappropriately, and it's to flaunt your wealth by what you wear. And one of the things I love about this church, again, is because we're kind of all over the map. We've got shorts and flip-flops, and we've got suits, and I try to dress middle of the road. You think what I wear is, I, I think about what I wear. I think about dressing right down the middle. I like to wear a nice shirt, pair of jeans. That way, people that can't afford nice suits can come here and say, oh, look, the pastor's wearing jeans. I can fit in around here. Or, or maybe those that are used to wearing suits, well, it's, you know, it's, there's not suits, but at least he's got a nice shirt on, you know, or whatever. My wife dressed me this morning, thank you. So, <laughs> moderation. Um, so, it can be the expensive, you know, just, just so focused on the, costly clothes that just are meant to intimidate the the power suits and the power clothes that are meant to say look i'm a woman of substance i'm wealthy and therefore and that can be used to intimidate ladies can it oh you know it okay it can be used to intimidate 
And so oftentimes people that are wealthy, that flaunt their wealth, feel like they have a greater say and are of more importance in a place than others. And the Bible continually tells us not to show partiality based on what someone is wearing or, or their appearance. We treat all people the same. So don't waste your time trying to impress us with your fancy clothes. We're not impressed. But it can be a problem, and, and it, it, can make, it can intimidate other people. It can make other people feel less, value, uh, less valuable. The other aspect is uh, this word propriety, which is an interesting word. Literally means uh, it's, it's the, the word not and the word to see. So I think if you look at propriety, it, w- it would mean um, not seen or to not see. And, and this is sometimes an issue. It can be, it can be translated also uh, shame or bashful. Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? They were naked, and the Bible says they were not ashamed. But then they fell, and they were ashamed, and they covered themselves. And so I think what Paul is saying is, you may, you may go to the gym, you may do your aerobics and your pump classes or your CrossFit or whatever, and you may be real proud of the body that God has given you, but you can still dress as if you were ashamed of it. As if. Now, again, I'm not saying you should be ashamed of it, but I'm saying you can dress in a way that, that covers rather than says, hey, look at me, everybody. You know, um, propriety. It's like, like kind of when you're in the bathroom and someone walks in, like your instinct is just to you know, kind of cover yourself. It's that instinct of I'm not, I'm not there to have attention drawn on me. I'm not there, you know. Sometimes we've got to teach the young girls about this, right? Because they don't understand how, how guys can be affected by the way that you dress. And by things that show. And now we got the media and the clothing companies that just promote this stuff. They make shorts now with words printed across the rear end. That doesn't help. That's not helpful. And we guys, we don't want to look. We don't. We just somehow our eyes have a mind of their own. They think for themselves. And so now instead of thinking about what the, pre, the pastor is speaking about, we're speaking, don't look, don't look, don't look, not looking, not looking, not, you know, we're making a covenant with our eyes to try to not notice the thing that everybody else is noticing. We're trying to pay attention to the word, but we're so busy trying not to pay attention that it, it just makes it difficult. Wow, that got a clap. All right. And this is, because when we come to church, we want to focus on the Lord, right? It's not, not a fashion show. Um, moderation, uh, is, again, moderation means middle, middle of the road. Dress, dress, dress middle of the road. You know, you don't have to dress in a potato sack. But it doesn't mean you can't look nice and, and dress well. But try to dress in a way that nobody notices you. That's middle of the road. If you're dressed middle of the road, you, do you remember what I wore last week? Of course you don't, because you were busy picking out your own outfit and figuring out what you were going to wear. But so that nobody notices. Let's just blend in. Um, they were showing their wealth. Braided hair, gold, pearls, costly clothing. The true beauty. What does he say the true beauty is, ladies? And for men, too. Good works. Good works. There is just the beauty of holiness. The beauty of a woman that is, you know, if, if, if all you've got is, is the outward you know, my grandmother was from Ukraine, and she used to make these eggs, these beautifully ornate eggs that were um, uh, colored and, and painted and I mean, ornate, but they were empty. They're beautiful on the outside, but empty. And, a, and an egg you get right out of the chicken coop, it's pretty plain on the outside, but it's full of life. But it's got life in it. 
And I think that that's when we see the beauty, a, a real, the real beauty of the, what I try to encourage my daughter. Proverbs eleven twenty two. Look, like a gold ring in a, in a hog's nose, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. I, that's on uh, the refrigerator downstairs in our youth room at, at Common Ground. That saying is on the refrigerator there. You know, you put a, a beautiful jewel in, in a hog's nose, and that hog is going to try to root it in the dirt and the ground. It's just, it's out of place, and it's inappropriate, and, and it just is, is a waste. Same thing when a woman is beautiful, but she lacks discretion. She's not discreet. She draws all the, it's just, it just becomes ugly, right? It's just, a beautiful woman can become ugly by being indiscreet. And a, an ugly woman, and I say that carefully, can become more beautiful, um, through her good works and her godly life. So I hope, that's, I hope the young ladies especially are listening as well. Now, uh, now we go to chapter 3. Uh, a, verse 11. Oh, I think we're almost out of time. Uh, <laughs> my, can I invite the praise team up now? Uh, no. Um, hey, this is the word of God. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. I mean, I feel like there's no commentary necessary on that. I think it speaks for itself. Um, no, you want to hear about that? That's the guys are saying that. That's right. <clears throat> let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Let's just talk about submission first. Um, subjection is another way to translate that. It literally means um, uh, to align or, uh, or to, um, to align under. And, and this is the, the attitude of the whole church. Peter said that, uh, yea, that everyone would be submissive one to another. There is, in the family of God, a general attitude of submissiveness, of yieldedness to one another. And that should be, that's for the guys and for the ladies. Now remember, Paul's addressing this with Timothy because this was an issue in the public meetings. That evidently the women and possibly the wealthy women, remember there were false teachers, there was a lot of disputing, there were, and I'm guessing because the false teachers were greedy, and we know that they were, we'll talk about that later on, I bet you what they did is they targeted with their false teaching who? The wealthy women. And we're having some success. And so now we have, you know, see here, you guys all learn in silence with submission. There's nobody jumping up saying, well, we haven't, maybe there will be today. But uh, as of yet, no one's jumping up saying, that's not right, that's wrong, I I learned this, and this is what that's about, and interrupting the meeting and all we all learn in silence with submission. But evidently, the women were struggling in that area. Now, the word silence literally means receptive attitude. Receptive attitude. So what Paul is calling the women to do is to not be overly confident in what they think they knew, but to be receptive to what was being taught. Rather than complaining or disputing about it, it was just disruptive. It's just disorderly, right? Somebody say amen just for the heck of it. 
Okay, thank you. Just make sure we're all connected here. Let a, so he says, look, now, now Timothy's got to tell him this. Right? I'm feeling for Timothy. I'm going, oh, Timothy, man, you've got you to have a women's meeting and say, okay, ladies, here's what Paul said, you know. Let a woman learn in silence with, with all submission. Now, that could be uh, just a temporary situation, some might say. That could be just a local issue. Uh, just for that church. But then Paul says, verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And, and he's speaking of, uh, you know, they're, they're there in the corporate meeting in terms of leadership, in terms of during these corporate meetings to have this authoritative uh, teaching or this authoritative uh, leadership role. And again, what is happening is let's first focus on um, to have authority. Let's talk about that. Because I'm being, this is why I took notes today. I want to be real careful as we work our way through this. To have authority, now when we studied Matthew 28, and Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. That's a Greek word, and I don't often, you know, bring the Greek uh, to you, uh, unless it's important. Um, and the word there is exousia, authority. The word here is authenteo. And it literally means one who with his own hands kills another or himself, one who acts on his own authority, autocrat, or to govern or exercise dominion over. Okay, so what Paul is saying is, evidently Timothy is having to deal with women stepping on the men in the church. And look, ladies, we need Deborahs, not Jezebels, in the body of Christ. You know, you don't see a whole lot of, you don't meet a whole lot of girls named Jezebel. You know, this is my daughter Jezebel. Yeah, sometimes you do, but not often because it's got bad connotations from the Bible. As a woman that was domineering and dominating over her husband and she was going to get done what she was going to get done at the expense of whatever else it, it would cost. Deborah was a woman who also had influence, but who used that influence to encourage the men. To encourage. And look, Churches have for a long time in recent years been dom- women dominated, by, dominated by women. The, 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 um, the, the groups, the committees, oftentimes women are very involved and, and men have sort of taken a very passive role. I don't think that's healthy. I think what's meant is for the men and the women to work as a team, men loving their wives, men expressing uh, care and protection and women yielding themselves and coming along in that supportive capacity. And it, it just works well. And you could say, that's old-fashioned. That's old-fashioned. How do you know? You see, because we get involved in these social experiments as, as people, don't we? You know, we went through the whole, don't spank your children. But it takes years and generations to figure out what's the result of that going to be. So we try all these, we, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, they tried free love and got STDs. Right? That experiment failed. So you see, as, par- as people, we, we try these human experiments that take generations to figure out the results. And so Paul says that the issue is that, that the women in that church specifically, uh, this is the issue they were facing, were, were acting independently and, and autocratically, separate from the general uh, sense of what was going on in the church. They were taking control. I had a woman tell me one time that she couldn't come to our church because we believed that men uh, were, were meant to be in the leadership roles and, and she was called to be uh, a leader. 
And I thought, you know, she's, I said, no, wait a second. You're telling me that, that you know, like this, the pastor position is sort of occupied unless you're looking to, you know, she's looking at me funny like, I'm going to take you out or something like that. I don't know. I'm like, that, that role sort of taken, um, not by my choice, not what I ever wanted, but God put me here. Um, and you're telling me that there's nowhere, like you can't serve anywhere else in the church? Because from what I remember, there's this guy named Jesus. And, and he sort of said, if I'm remembering correctly, my memory's not so good, but I think I remember him saying, if the one, the one who wants to be great should be the servant of all. So the fact that we even have power struggles, the fact that we even get ignited and bristled about who gets to be in charge reveals the problem in the first place. Because it's bad if the men were vying for dominance too. That would be bad, just as bad. But the problem was is uh, the women seemed to have been really uh, trying to step over and overstep the men who were... Now sometimes there's not guys willing to do it. And I think one, God raises up women to do it in that case. But boy, um, having godly men is something our culture really needs rather than just passive men. Because the women, they want the Lord, they want truth, they're excited and they're zealous and they're diligent. And the guys will show up, maybe, sometimes. They'll be here. And I do not permit a woman to teach authoritatively or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, again, is this simply local? Or is this a mandate for the church in all time? Because those, look, most pastors won't touch this with a 10-foot pole. When's the last time you heard a sermon in this, on this in church? Right? Probably never, because no, but I made this thing with the Lord that I'm going to go through your word verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So, look, you can disagree with me uh, if you want. You can disagree with the Lord if you want. You can think it's old-fashioned, but we're laying it out. Is this a mandate for all times, or was this just for local, um, a local and a specific situation? I think it was for all time, and here's why, because in verse 13, if you want to know what's right, you go back to the beginning. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So, you know, because cultures change, right? Culture shifts, the, the pendulum swings, and it's like, well, what's, which cultural um, out, you know, outgrowth of, of cultural uh, thinking is right? Is it right to have... Uh, women in authority? Is it right to have men in authority? Is it right to... Ha- what's, what's it look like? We don't know. Hard to know what's right, what's wrong, unless you go back to how God created things. God could have created Eve first, Paul is saying. He could have made that choice, but he didn't. I don't know why. You've got to talk to him about that. That's why it's important that, first of all, you pray. Don't forget that. That's where we started. You pray first. And, and he said, well, God created Adam first. And, and, and evidently, Paul's reasoning here is that because... Adam was created first. That gave him um, uh, the leadership sort of role, uh, not more important than the woman. We know that, right? Please tell me we know that. Just a different role. I'm a, I'm a soccer coach. And all the kids want to be the striker because he's the guy that scores the goals. And that's the one that gets, you know, is out in the front. And all. But every position is important. And when I say, okay, kids, take your positions, you know, if they all stand at the striker position, well, that's not going to be no, it can be no good for the rest of the team. We need a goalie and we need defenders and we need every position. And one position is not any less important than another. They're all extremely important, but it's important that you do the job that you're good at, that you're made for, instead of trying to do somebody else's job. It says Adam was formed first, and then, and then he, Eve, he created, he built Eve out of Adam's side to be his helper to be his completer not his competer 
They were supposed to work as a team. As Zig Ziglar said, even in a parade of two cars, someone has to take the lead. And so this is the way, he's, so it goes back to the beginning, back to Adam and Eve, back to, to creation. Here's the way they were created, Adam first, and then Eve. And then verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This is so interesting because some would say, well, now women have Bible training and so they can take this authoritative leadership role. Um, and, and again, I don't think that, um, and some would say that's why this doesn't apply today, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He says, look, Adam wasn't deceived. Uh, but let's, so let's talk about Eve just for a second. Eve uh, was deceived. They, they were given a, a garden of a, with a multitude of fruit trees. And he said, Adam, you guys can eat everything you want. Enjoy. Have just this one tree. The one tree, that's not where, I don't want you to have that one. The tree of the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one. And so Satan, does he come to Adam to deceive him? He goes to Eve. And, and some would say that there is this inherent different, you know, look, guys can be gullible too. I'm not saying that just women are easily deceived. Guys can be deceived too. It's not about that. But women tend to come to things from a more emotional side. Guys tend to come from a more problem-solving side. When there's something going on, the women empathize. The guys, what do we have to do to solve this thing? And we're just created. How many of you know that guys and girls are created differently? Okay, it's true. It's true. And look, I married a... My wife plays ice hockey. She's tough. And she's very intelligent and she's very wise. She'd probably lead our family better than I do. But if I'm a smart leader of my family, I look to her for, for advice. I look to her, I look to her strengths, and I call on that. If she, and, if she decides to act on her own outside of working together with me, that can get bad. And so Eve now finds herself where? By the one tree she's not supposed to be near. And Satan targets her. And I think Satan, Paul's argument is Satan was targeting the women in the church here. Smooth-talking guys, women who empathize. I think Satan targets women. I think he really does because they're, emo- they're feeling, they're feelers. And he says that she was deceived and fell into transgression. Hey, Eve, it, it, it's good for you. It's going to make you wise. It's going to make you able to make your own decisions. And Eve says, oh, yes, I want to be be that. I want to have that. It looks good. makes sense to me. And and she doesn't see any reason that could be wrong. Just like some of you are saying today, I don't see any reason a woman can't lead. I don't see any any reason a woman can't be a pastor. Well, you know, Eve didn't see any reason the fruit couldn't be eaten of that that tree. Looked good to her. Seemed right. Why not? We have to be careful about autocratic decisions, making decisions apart from the will of God, making decisions apart from the command of God and apart from the plan of God. So Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What about Adam? And pay close attention. I know we're getting close to, oh boy, we are time. Um, Ladies, you have a lot of influence in our lives. When you get upset about something, we're ready to go tear them up. You know, if you're you're upset, we're ready to go, man, we don't want somebody making our wives upset. You have a lot of influence in our lives. It's true, isn't it, guys? They do. Um, Adam wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. Adam chose his wife over God. And he did it willingly and he did it knowingly. 
And Adam is held responsible for that, for that transgression, for that fall. But the point that, um, that Paul is trying to make is that Eve, as part of her transgression, what happened was that she stepped out um, autocratically. She stepped out independently of Adam and made a choice. Uh, and it caused a, a great fall. It caused a fall. It caused her husband. See, if guy, uh, ladies, if Satan can get you, he can get, he can get your husband too. Because husbands, we just want to make you happy. We just don't want you to cry. You know, don't, don't just, and, and Satan can, can use that to divide. If he can get you, he can divide your house. He can divide our church. And, and he can win that way. Now, the last verse here, and I'll make this quick, uh, is probably the hardest verse in the whole New Testament to understand. There are a couple of options. Uh, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing or literally in the childbearing, meaning that Eve brought forth the Savior, the, the seed, and through the seed of the woman came Jesus. And so that by, uh, by childbearing, then, uh, she brings forth salvation through Christ to everybody. Um, it could also mean that uh, although she sinned and, and, and Adam sinned with her, he listened to her voice, the Bible says, and, and he, he fell into transgression as well, that all, she wasn't, they weren't killed right then, but uh, she would go on to, to have children and, uh, and that that would be kind of, again, those children would lead, lead on up to the Messiah. Uh, and some say what Paul is saying here is that um, when a woman embraces her role, uh, the place where she does have authority uh, in, in, uh, with her family, with her children, when she embraces that uh, childbearing rather than running from it, rather than wanting to be in this other position, this other role, when she embraces Raising children, look, ladies, and I want to say this especially to the to the women that have young children. You only get one shot. You get one shot. And I remember talking to a woman in our church not too long ago, just about making the decision to take a job. And I, I know sometimes you know, in the economy, women have to work. It's just a fact. Women have to work, and that can be challenging. That can be tough. But I want to just encourage you. She said, "Well, I'm debating whether or not to take this job. Should I do it? What do you think?" And I said, "Well." You know, it sort of depends on are you able to do that and still, you know, care for your kids. Because here's what I know, that someone else can do that job, but no one else can be a mother to your children. No one else can be them. Only you, ladies. So, you know, instead of worrying about what we can't have and what we should, you know, where, where we're not, focus on where we are called to be. That's for the guys, too. Look, our, our men's retreat is about men being leaders. And this is not, you know, dominating you know, type of leadership. This is loving leadership. We're going to talk about that in chapter 3. And when we get these things right, it just functions well. You know, you can drive your car in reverse, but it's dangerous. Works best this certain way. Designed to work that way. And so as a church, you know, I thank God we just have so little politics in Calvary Chapel. And we've got six elders and we're all men, and we have wonderful relationships. We pray intimately together. And if, if, if a woman was part of that prayer, it would just change the dynamics. We couldn't have at the core, at the leadership, what we have as, as a group of men praying together, talking about issues, real issues in our lives. And it makes all the difference in the world for the whole church. It really does. And it would just, you know, it's just a different dynamic because, uh, well, that's, I shouldn't linger here. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that, uh, that we would just absorb these things, think them through, and um, 
just come to you with them, Lord. We, we, just, we, we want to be in step with your will, Lord. We want to be in step with the way we're, we were created, both male and female. God created them. And Lord, we want to just do our part to the best of our ability. The men, Lord, we want to pray and lead with love and with care. And Lord, I pray that the women would desire to come alongside and be encouragers and be helpers and, and have the places, Lord, in, uh, in teaching where, where they can teach and where they will teach, Lord, with women and children and other places, Lord, um, where men can't. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word and all of its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, let's do this. It, it's, it's later than, than should be, and the kids are probably getting um, anxious. So let's close with just a little acapella song. What do you say? Yeah, let's stand.